You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Another day, another Outsiders spoiler preview card. Brendan, have you seen the latest preview card for Outsiders? Yeah, I think it's the best one. <laughs> it's the, this one? I think it's the most exciting, right? You're talking about Dishonor? I'm talking about Dishonor. It's the uh, most exciting. Most exciting? Yeah, yeah def- maybe. I like... Definitely. The rest of the game, we've never seen anything like that before. And I, I don't know. I guess I just have a bit of a proclivity towards ninja control. And this is like, whew, gets me excited. Well, well, we'll talk about that. There's a couple other cards that have been previewed this week as well. Outsiders preview cards starting to really trickle through now as we head towards the preview season, which actually starts in uh, like a week and a half, right? So the not far off. We've got our preview card, and we do have a preview card for Outsiders. We have now seen it. Yes, we've seen it. We, we've just seen it. So uh, we revealed that in, I think it's the second day of preview. So um, make sure to look out for that. Yeah, I mean, that that card is technically broken, I guess. Because, like, I mean, it's not even a matter of opinion. It's it's uh, technically broken. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, breaks the core tenets of the game. Yep. Well, we'll uh, I don't know what else. Maybe we'll, we'll drop some hints as we get closer to the time. But Brennan's already given you, you something there. Anyway, episode 98 of Arsenal Pass. Welcome. This is calling preparations. We're talking about, I guess we're in the midst of a calling season that's about to wrap up as we head towards, you know, we hurdle towards outsiders releasing. I'm playing a calling this weekend in Auckland, New Zealand. We have, of course, had Indianapolis uh, a couple of weeks ago. Plus, we've had a, a swath of battle-hardened events. And, you know, through this sort of time period post-Dynasty, uh, I myself have been preparing for events and, you know, Brennan's been doing it a lot in the past. So we are going to talk about preparation for events like callings, tours things like that and through the specific lens of this particular calling and a, a lot of learnings that have happened through this uh through this season in particular when it comes to preparing for flesh and blood events so before that though brendan you haven't been playing flesh and blood this week but you did uh you did have the marathon in austin uh, how did you get on yeah so <laughs> you might hear my voice but i actually got like a sinus infection chest infection pretty bad the week before my girlfriend got really, really sick. Um, so I ended up doing the half marathon and we have a marathon. <clears throat> I'm doing a marathon now with my brother in May in California, which I'm actually really excited for because it's a freaking beautiful one. Basically, you start out in the middle of the mountains and you run to the beach. Um, it's called Mountains to Beach. I know, very, uh, very, <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very imaginative name. Yeah, yeah. Very imaginative name. Yeah. So um, I was pretty freaking beat down going into that race, <clears throat> but just did the half. And it, I mean, it was, uh, it was tougher than I expected, um, which I think was mostly because I was sick, but also Austin is just kind of a bitch, to be honest. Like it's, uh, it's like all uphill for three miles, which is no big deal because that's when you're starting. Then you level out. And then the last three miles, like these rolling hills, uh, that were taking freaking souls. People were, people were fading out right at the end. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was fun. Um, and I learned a lot. It, we shot for sub two hours and 30 minutes, which is a, it's pretty slow, pretty slow pace. It's around 11 minutes, but you know, if you're doing it your first time, it's, it's reasonable. And I finished at 229.59, literally one second to go. Um, yeah, I, I had a great time. Um, I am excited for the, the California one, but not excited to be in training for another two months now, but it's all the better. Yeah. I mean, best of luck to you. <laughs> yeah. I can't see myself running a half marathon and well half marathon maybe maybe i could stretch to that but definitely not a marathon that's a that's a big undertaking so you know two more months of training and you'll be heading into the summer months so i guess a, a bit nicer especially on the although that is that maybe the opposite worse. too hot yeah, on, in california <laughs> much much worse I, I mean i i sweat a lot dude it's it's crazy like i it's i'm indistinguishable with you. indistinguishable from jumping in a pool <laughs> so i went through like five full head sweatbands on this race um but california will be should be reasonable but um yeah you really want to be for me ideally 40 degrees fahrenheit they're like maybe 30s which is like pretty cold because once you creep up dude you just start sweating and it sucks i'm also a sweaty guy yeah (laughs) (laughs) well myself i mean no half marathons for me although i did do a a 20 kilometer uh like erg bike challenge trying to sprint that out that that destroyed my soul earlier this week but otherwise just flesh and blood testing uh calling of course this weekend try gonna go through my whole preparations the kind of journey that has been talk about the decks that uh i'm looking to play and, and what i'm gonna play this weekend in in auckland 
and that's kind of been it just trying to get ahead of things uh, i was on holiday for a couple of weeks so you know work's been busy but get to play some flesh and blood this week i'm super excited like i i love the prospect of playing big flesh and blood events and i think there's a lot of people in this boat you know if you went to indianapolis or maybe you've played one of these battle hardens in europe recently or even in the us you know playing these events i think you come out of these events and you have this like vigor for playing flesh and blood i know after events you know, we talk about it at Worlds, right, Brendan? You were like, on the Sunday, you're like, man, I just want to play some Flesh and Blood. To the point that on Sunday evening at the uh, the, the Players Party post-World Championships, mm-hmm. Brendan just played Flesh and Blood half cut all night. So, yeah. He knows uh, what it's like. Well, speaking of big events, the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour happened last weekend. Mm-hmm. And I just want to bring it up because it was freaking amazing. Uh, and, you know, they came back from not doing paper events, not doing coverage, and they really hit it out of the park. In terms of production value, the product it was ridiculous. It was really, good. <laughs> it was really, really good. Um, I think that, yeah, flesh and blood, just being on the coverage side of that a bit now, um, we could definitely pick up some from that, especially the lack of downtime. Like, it was just straight freaking content the whole time. But it, it's just awesome to see... Other, you know, even though I know some people look at Flesh and Blood, like at Magic, it's like competitors, but we're all kind of in the same game, to be honest. And I think that they really set the bar. And I think that Flesh and Blood will actually level up as a result of what happened last week with the coverage from Magic. So um, I watched it. I thought it was great. And if you haven't yet, I highly recommend you check it out. Yeah, I really hope that LSS and, and coverage partners can take some, some beats from that because, yeah, I, I only saw a little bit so far the first few rounds, but, you know, you... And, and this is just from a coverage perspective, I think, what the things I love to see from, and I'd love to see in Flesh and Blood, you know, you sit down, you're at home, you watch this event, and it feels like you're you're there as a spectator. Yeah. You know, not quite there, but you, you're, there's, a, there's a whole thing happening and falling in front of you, and you've got all this, all these people who, you know, there's, there's pundits, there's commentary for the matches, obviously, then you go back to the news desk, and they're talking about the event and how it's unfolding. There's updates on, you know, key players, your favorite players, things like this, you know, they... They flow to uh, an interview, talk about you know how a team prepared for the event. Then they flow to uh, this like this draft year or this this uh, this deck tech, whatever it might be. And I, it's so yeah, you, like you say, no downtime, but also you get to feel like you're actually uh, watching watching yeah. a big event and you're involved with something. It's like it was this one. It felt like real TV. It was crazy. So there, there was, I mean. <clears throat> I'll, I'll mention a few specifics that are a bit more niche that I think were huge to level up. So they did cards in hand and they had two people working on it. One of them being um, Adorag Das and I think Will Hall, which are you know some big kind of content creators there. But anyway, they were doing cards in hand and like it was freaking solid. Like it was it was spot on. We knew every single card. Like when it was a main feature match, we knew every single card in the player's hand. It had tons of context. It was great. Um they upgraded the freaking camera or whatever was that was Amazing. looking at the pl- it was ridiculous. Like it was the best resolution I've ever seen. They went to a they went through a north south um uh play state, which is it, usually people don't like that, but because the camera was so high quality, like they were able to expand the play area so much. It actually looked r- crazy good on the TV. Um and on top of that, of course, like the commentators were great, but then they had the analyst desk and just all those other different um sort of avenues to constantly talk about, like constantly going to deck techs, constantly going to um, you know, talking about the teams, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the maximum break was two minutes. Like it was freaking straight content. You were watching it for, uh, you know, eight to ten, ten hours a day, day for the three hours that it, it went. So, yeah, kudos to them. Uh, breaks great, right? Like, you know, if, if you're someone who wants to tune into the full thing, you want to, you know, take comfort breaks, uh, food breaks, whatever it might be. And of course, you know, Twitch, you can you can rewatch stuff, right? So maybe you miss the end of the day, you can go back and watch it. But yeah, I I am excited to actually go. I haven't seen i've only seen a bit of it as i said i'm excited to go back and watch the the whole thing because it did really feel like a spectacle and event anyway brendan let's get into some flesh and blood uh, flesh and blood news uh let's start with these preview cards because there has been more preview cards trickling through as we said we got dishonor literally just before the podcast dropped a couple of hours before i mean i just woke up so to me it's just happened uh we've also seen collapsing trap which is the majestic ranger defense trap and we had this peace of mind which is the team government uh, team covenant preview card with their uh their alt art uh, promo card why don't we why don't we start with Dishonor? It's the latest to come out. Uh Brendan, why don't you tell us what Dishonor does and then tell us your thoughts on Dishonor? Yeah, so Dishonor's a ninja uh ninja action attack majestic. It's a blue strip, um zero cost, and two attack, three defense. But it says combo. If Bonds of An- Ancestry was the last attack on this combat chain, this has plus two, so getting up to four. And then it says when this hits a hero, if you control surging strike, 
descendant gust wave and bonds of an- an- ancestry that hero loses all abilities for the rest of the game um like my first takeaway is is like yeah the the, the second the second piece of text here is probably a bit challenging to get um definitely does favor katsu by the way because we've been talking a lot about the dichotomy between katsu and phi and how phi just sort of outvalues katsu in the sense because you just get that sort of plus one per turn but this is leaning more into what katsu is good at and is like the card selection tutoring up cards and completing these combo lines so that makes it more exciting and yeah while while this while this secondary text might be hard to hit it is cool for the sort of ninja control archetype and to add just more relevant on hit triggers to katsu i'm not sure how hard it will be to hit i'm just assuming um but yeah hero losing all abilities for the rest of the game that's a pretty atypical uh line of text there a on hit trigger that lasts farther than a turn cycle i don't think we've seen anything like that before yeah i mean when i saw bonds of ancestry i was super interested right you know we we have surging strike one and gust wave and traditionally this mcginchi lord of wind line right and that that was the line and then we saw bonds of ancestry and it's like okay cool any card with gust wave in the name well does that mean we're going to get a new gust wave but also we've got a new chain ender for uh surging strike and all of a sudden yeah we do but it's actually not bonds of ancestry it's you know it's it's now this card um it's dishonor so i what i really like about this card and, and someone asked me i think it was a question and maybe the mailbag or, or someone had asked it uh, separately was like how, how can katsu be good like what does it, will it take for katsu to be good and the answer is for the hero ability to be super super relevant yeah and i think when you've got these different ways to produce combo lines different ways to put cards together and even branch off cards so that your hand you basically you want that katsu ability to be able to go and find you know the, the best card it can but you want to have the density of other combo threats in the deck so that when you draw up a hand you have multiple of these options you know so traditionally if it's like okay surging strike gust wave mcginchi you know the opponent plays a surging strike it's like okay well what's the worst that can happen here either they have gust wave or mcginchi and i'm going to commit to blocking the mcginchi and they have to go and get that but if all of a sudden they've got these other options to go and get you don't know what the break point's going to be on something uh maybe there's two different gust waves it can start to be a little bit different so i really like this coming after Bonds of Ancestry, I already thought that card was quite cool. You know, a, a way to get a free zero for four attack that, that has a relevant ability. And now Dishonor. So you can just, and, and blue, right? A, a combo card in blue, blue Majestics, mm-hmm. I think they have relevant abilities. You, know, you can pitch this early. You can then go and get it off your, your card. So I, I think that's, this card is, is really, really cool. At, at worst, a zero for four, right? And at best, you know, something that's super relevant if uh, if heroes aren't prepared for it to you know turn their hero ability off for the, the rest of the game like that is that is really relevant you know i mean i know the the first joke someone posted in chat i'm in is like oh livia <laughs> mm. well yeah unfortunately for kano this would be pretty freaking bad um <laughs> but yeah i mean it's a blue block it's a blue block three it's a great resource card <laughs> at the very least um i think this is it's just tough when we discuss like ninja and katsu being relevant it's like what do you have to do to make katsu actually good what kind of cards do you have to print and i think it's i'm not sure if it's exactly this but it's cards like this like the the on hit abilities of the cards have to be really really relevant um because i think that katsu's ability effectively has to convert to more than one one point of quantitative value per turn or it's just like you should be playing five it's really hard to and it's really hard to uh put a quantitative value on that because of what it is right it's a tutor effect you know some some other tutor effects so basically i guess the best way is like okay the worst card in your hand turns into so say it's a, a blue bombing gust wave that you're not going to use so if you can turn that into a zero for four you you know you're up plus three on that card's value but really you're not because that card is probably average value is three on defense right so if you go get a zero for four you're up one or you have a spare resource and you can get a card that costs one and it comes in for five you know like um pounding gale for instance mm-hmm. uh then you know you're gonna be up plus two so th- those are the kind of things i think you have to look at as you say and that's harder to do but with more and more combo cards and more and more ways to make your hands more relevant because there's just more combo enders or there's more combo middle cards to go and find to make your hands as good as possible and, and get the most damage out of as possible with the most on hit effects as possible that's going to make katsu better and better so yeah. i'm excited I- i'd love to play katsu and outsiders i think you know, I got my iron riptide right now, but if, if Katsu has a lot of these different ways to build it and it's not, you know, maybe there's more, there's, you know, you can build an aggro, you can build a mid-range, you build with these different combos. That makes me super excited. Maybe even transformational like that. I'm in there for that. Yeah, I, I to be honest, I, I think that 
like Flack is broken. Like I think it's a very I think it's an over I think it's a legitimately like super overpowered card, especially at red and blue. And it's like if we can just get enough supporting cards to play those cards, I think that Katsu's a great deck. Um I mean that uh, you could argue that Drone of Brutality is what pushed Katsu into success initially. Uh back in like Welcome to Wraith, but it was really flick flack. That's why Katsu won out above the other heroes in terms of like the premier fatigue deck. Yeah, it was so above right in Welcome to Wraith. And, and it is above right. Like zero yeah. for six and at blue zero for four. Like that is good. Obviously there's prerequisites and there's some restrictions, but you know, the more and more combo cards you can get into a deck that is naturally really, really good. That makes Flick Flack even better naturally, like you say, and um great sideboard options or potentially you play in this kind of mid range or controlly way. All right. What do you work? collapsing trap because another interesting card we saw another majestic this is a range of defense reaction trap cost zero defense for three uh and it's a legendary riptide specialization and it says when this defends an attack with go again the defending hero discards their hand then draws that many cards minus one uh and we did also get a rules clarification with this so anything with the the type line uh that so the previous traps had the type line can only be played from arsenal the new traps do not have that so the new traps in this set will be able to be played from hand uh that does not change the crucible of war traps that we'd already seen that do have that type line uh, can be it can only be played from arsenal so those won't change but you know these these new traps we're going to see in the set can be played from hand which i think is a very interesting change and potentially mm-hmm. a very cool one i mean it's the only thing that was going to save the this the game design that went around traps because they uh, they were sort of hyped up initially um and they were init- they were the meta that they were exposed to when they first came out was just not the right meta it was dominated by dash and stuff um but like i think the traps just kind of failed a bit and this is yeah this is the best chance we have and i think that they're cool from like ideologically but they just weren't quite there this card is very very good and excites me but the biggest question i have is whether they're going to keep printing zero for four red traps because then traps are just strictly better than like the defense reactions um and you know a def- like a zero for four defense reaction that adds a negative on hit <laughs> trigger to your opponent that's ridiculous um that, like that's so much better than sink below i think so collapsing trap itself though there's a reason why this is legendary this card is very very good yeah, I mean, you got to take it the fact that those are tied to specific heroes or specific classes, right? So an above rate card on a generic, like versus a generic mm-hmm. in a class is not uncommon. Like that is, you know, you can have above rate cards in classes. Like that's not, that's not out of the question. But how many of them and to what effect? Like a zero for four that has the ability to say like deal two damage. And now it's a zero for six you know flick flack-esque yeah yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's the parallel that's right tough. it's like it's like you just look at flick flack and like flick flack is freaking busted and it's like anything that gets close to being flick flack-esque right which is zero for four with like legitimate upside past like hand filtering or like a you know a scry or something like those cards are really really powerful and if they errata traps and they change the rule around and they print like a few of them we could see a totally re- like a totally different type of ranger uh come onto the scene also just mid-range mid-range rangers uh in azalea and things like that i think you would see i don't think you would see for instance uh tripwire trap necessarily printed without that text line like i think it would have to look a bit different and i think that's clearly why these are not getting eroded uh part of it obviously there's there's the the printing issue but yeah i mean we'll see uh, as we get into outsiders more we'll see what these traps look like um but this is a very cool one. And like you say, yeah, very powerful. Makes sense. It's legendary. Let's look at this last card quickly. I don't think we need to dwell on it too much, but peace of mind. It's a generic instant at common. Cost two at the red line that we're seeing. It does have a full cycle. And uh, it says the next time you would be dealt attack damage this turn, prevent four of that damage, create a ponder token. The yellow prevents three, the blue prevents two. Um, I don't know. I don't really have many thoughts about this card. Uh, it's cool to see more ways to create ponder tokens. Uh, two. So like, if you, you evaluate this card right at red, Cost you two plus the card itself to prevent four damage, and then you have a ponder token that's going to draw your card into game. So at end of turn, sorry. So you could look at this as I guess as two cards for potentially seven. You know, four damage prevented plus a card drawn. Doesn't seem too bad, but my guess my my sort of thought with this is where is this going to be used? You know, where is this going to be more relevant than say a zero for four defense reaction? Uh, Is it against dominate, for instance? Like where where is this going to be relevant? So yeah, I don't think. uh... 
This, I think this card will slot into decks that are already utilizing this archetype. I don't think it's just going to slot in as a generically good card like something like Sinkblow that would, but it could. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the two in being able to utilize that extra resource to block like a piece of arcane or filter via, via crown of seeds, like that's very good. Like the sort of runoff if you pitch a blue for this. Um, mm-hmm. but outside of that, I don't really see this card being utilized, like just being that like generic good card that everybody starts playing in their deck, which I think it was kind of hyped up. Like it was going to be that. I think it's more of like, you know, if you're if you're trying to prevent more damage, you're maybe a bit more controlling. This is a p- potentially a good option. I'm also very happy that it said physical damage. I was like, if I saw it, I was yes. like, God damn it! And I was like, not again. <laughs> classic Brendan immediately came. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the you know classic Wolfpack shenanigans hyping this card up. I think, but <laughs> I, I think I mean, you look at let's take an, uh, an example, right? This was Crown of Seeds. I mean, Crown of Seeds a very strong card, obviously in itself, but Pitch your blue, you play, you activate Crown of Seeds, uh, and then you you turn the floating two resources into prevent four draw a card, which then replaces your you know your arsenal next turn if you're in a full defensive mode. That, that's a that's a really good trade, right? Like it's mm-hmm. you know it's not a not a bad trade whatsoever. So, um, but like you say, it's I think it's very specific. It's going to be in archetypes that can utilize the two resources to best effect with the other resource pitching a blue and it's going to be where that ponder token is really relevant so you know replacing an arsenal for crown of seeds so it doesn't matter what the card is that's really relevant decks that potentially have just like the same kind of effect over and over again maybe decks that play a lot of traps for instance uh relevant but yeah we'll see Mm. let's move on in the news uh trap errata we already talked about there has been an organized play announcement that has come for uh, I guess it's a premier play announcement, which is just putting a bit of a, a roadmap for the rest of the year. Not too many events fully confirmed, but we have had uh, two callings in Europe confirmed. So Antwerp and Birmingham have been confirmed to be going ahead, plus some more Battle Hardens. Uh, you can go and check out where all these Battle Hardens are over on Flesh and Blood on the uh, fabtcg.com website. There's one in Richmond, Pittsburgh, Salt Lake City in the US, and there's also been one confirmed for Germany. So it's super exciting for uh, German fans of the game. And then... I think this is written by James White, and I think he gives a bit of an outline of some of the events to expect for the rest of the year. So for my brethren in Asia-Pacific, not too much news. Uh, in fact, in the article, it says, Noticeably absent from today's article is news surrounding Asia-Pacific. But apparently by March 31st, we will have uh, we'll have a lot of uh, these events yep. in the books uh, in terms of scheduled. So it looks like, if you know, just extrapolating from this article, uh, we will probably get a calling in Australia to go along with this calling in, um, in New Zealand, plus a calling in Asia. Uh, two callings in Asia, sorry, in East, Southeast Asia, which is super exciting. I'd love to, again, love to see a calling in Japan. Uh, I would imagine Singapore would be a huge candidate for another calling just based on how that event went. And James Woods, I was at the Calling Singapore, James White said at the Calling Singapore, expect big things here in Singapore for flesh and blood in the very near future. Mm, I wonder if that's a pro tour <laughs> or worlds. Uh, that's but what I thought. Yeah. I think that, so one thing to note here is that we were probably some of the biggest critics over the past year for Flesh and Blood's um, sort of announcement schedule and how yes, close it was to events. So a little golf clap here for them you know, starting to turn that around, give us a bit more notice. Um, yeah, I think we should just recognize that because we were definitely been digging them for a while because they were announcing pretty late. I think that the only critique around this news that I've seen is that um, – yeah, it does seem clear that OP has taken a step back in terms of number of events, and not everybody thinks that's a bonus. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's that's the one critique is just the the lack of events. I know it's it's weird coming off of last year because you know LSS they they sort of toned down the number of events by saying that there was too many last year, and um, I I think some of us actually kind of agreed with that back then. We're like, damn, we just came out of a tournament, we're back into PT two, right. then we're doing this exactly, and then now that it's slowed down, it's like, damn, there's like no tournament. So it's a weird it's a weird balance um i think that i would like to see more i think that the calling circuit and i know that the u.s was spoiled for callings and you know germany asia or not germany sorry europe and asia really got screwed but the calling circuit that we had back in tales of aria limited for the united states and back around that vegas time that was awesome that felt like peak flesh and blood to me i would love to be able to recapture that experience um sometime yeah it's worth noting that there's not less callings they're just not all in North America. And I, the critics <laughs> yeah. I've seen of this mostly have people in North America. Yeah. <laughs> which Everybody I else is like, right? hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get some events. Yeah, which I understand, right? Like you went from that season where that year where you had uh, four callings. Was it? Uh, mm-hmm. Five even because it was Vegas then. Oh, no, Vegas to Limited and then the Orlando. So four callings and the back half of the year. Super exciting, right? And this year there's going to be one more calling in North America. 
Um, is it one or maybe two, I guess, with nationals? But it's like, that's obviously a step down. But, you know, for the rest of the world, it's like, okay, Europe, not one, not two, but three callings. That's the tagline for Europe this year. And also the World Championships happening in Europe. That is the next big piece of news, although we don't know where and when yet, but that will be announced at PT Baltimore. Um, you know, Asia Pacific getting callings, um, Europe, like we just you know just talked about, uh, you know Brazil's getting some uh, like a battle hardened. I think like th- these there are events happening. They're just the spread because of the player base now is it's starting to spread out. And I do agree. You know I think t- we've definitely taken a bit of a step back in terms of maybe these competitive regions, basically just North America and the events they get. And I think there's an opportunity to rectify that next year. But also at the same time, I think you know as a player who wants to also do other things, I kind of really like the fact that we're you know i i agree i thought last year was there was i felt like i was just that my whole year was flesh and blood and i feel like this year i have some downtime and that is uh that is you know that is keeping me i guess the vigor for the game alive but i do admit when it comes to like i'm thinking about the calling this weekend i just know on monday when i'm on my flight back home i'm gonna be like man when's the next big event you know like it, it is you do get that bug and i think obviously players post examples have that this announcement coming off the back of that um yeah you know, players in europe rejoice because you can have a really good year of flesh and blood. I think that they could upgrade some of the battle hardens in the U.S. to callings because the turn the turnouts are so high, and the battle harden is in this weird middle ground where it's like it's hard to justify um, traveling for it. Yeah, it's hard, it's, hard, well, it's hard to justify traveling for it despite so many people showing up and despite them being so po- popular. So I think that you can see the proof of concept that the competitive drive is there for the player base, um, and we could potentially upgrade these some battle hards. In other news, by the way, the grassroots tournaments of flesh and blood are doing really well. Um, uh, I, Realm Games just announced a 2024 Flesh and Blood Cruise tournament. I don't know if you that saw reminds that. me of like old Magic, yeah, right? Like the the Magic cruises. <laughs> oh, we're definitely going on that. By the way, that's hilarious. Um, I mean, definitely, twist my arm. definitely. Yeah, twist my arm. <laughs> I do like that North America is being supplemented by these these awesome events. Obviously, that you know that doesn't provide some of the prestige of like Elo and things like that 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 callings do. But I, I do agree. Like if you change just two battle hardens to callings from north america i think everyone would be super thrilled with the year um as it is i think people are still pretty happy and we have a roadmap i well you know we talked about being critics of the uh the, the tight turnaround on event scheduling that has continued to happen this year so far and to be honest you know there's not there are some pretty short notice events on here as well um <laughs> with antwerp i think that's march 19th 21st you know like that was announced a week ago and that's less than a month away you know we're still we're still seeing short turnaround times and yes worlds is announced in europe but we don't know where and we don't know when so people will still can't plan for that so i, I do I, I will say you know i'm super happy with this announcement i think it's great but i'm still going to say we need more time need more lead time in these events i'm not gonna lie i thought it was only me but i thought that was funny because the the uh, the article came out it was like we heard you we're announcing things early and it was like a month away i was like what yeah, enter, enter it. March. <laughs> Uh, all right let's i start. think there's another one in april as well right i think Bel- belgium is, yeah sorry um uh sorry you know what it's may you know what i take that back it's may so they've given three months i, I read march and was like oh my goodness come this in march i take it back sorry sorry uh hey. sorry, well let's throw anyway. it, let's throw it on the barbie and make it better what do we have for the uh command cook out here well uh just just before we get there just quickly uh the one thing i did want to talk about because i think it's it's very very cool is uh it hasn't been talked about that much, I think, or at least I haven't been seeing as much. As Outsiders local language release is is happening, you know, as, as soon as Outsiders releases, it is releasing mm. in uh, native languages for parts of Europe, which is super cool and really exciting to see. So I think this is going to be, you know, we've got a massive OP announcement for Europe and we've got native language coming for a lot of Europe this year. That is really exciting for uh, the growth of, of the game in Europe. I'm pretty concerned about my uh, ability to get white border cards for future and uh, future sets if they're printing in native immediately oh, cool. my history pack's still around and they're out now um anyway as you say let's uh, head over to the to the barbie brendan the barbie. Command and cookout we've got a question from loganinity7 uh came from the community discord and uh this question i think comes up from some other questions we've answered previously but um come on cookout what is the list of cards that hayden sees as fundamentally broken cards and why does he think so uh, Brennan, you know, we've talked about this before, some of the list of cards that we think are on the chopping block in the future for being banned. Some of those have already been well and truly hit. Underrun, for instance. Um, Winter's Whale now yeah. as well. What What are your thoughts before I get on to, to my list? Do you, do, you have, do you have a criteria yourself? I mean, I have a bit of a criteria for this, which I can explain, but I'd love to throw it over to you first because we haven't, we haven't talked about this a lot ourselves, but it's something that we, we do reference sometimes. Yeah, I think uh, 
Chronos Seed is a little crazy. <laughs> At least for a permanent that exists on the battlefield, it's just like it's a lot. Um, but honestly, I'll throw myself under the bus and say that Aether Wildfire is probably a little busted. <laughs> I guess. I mean, if we're talking about math and like quantitative values of cards and things being overrate, it's like, yeah, obviously Aether Wildfire is contextual, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So this question comes about because I, I have mentioned this a, a couple of times on pods about card lists of cards. I've I've had since the game started, since Walking Trath, I've had this kind of list of cards that I thought were really powerful and were cards that often I will go back to to try and be like, okay, how do you build around? How do you like take advantage of these cards? How can I play as many of these cards as possible in a deck, for instance? Um, and then the other piece of it is like, you know, what's going to happen to these cards in the future? So there's been some cards like Plum Dorm, we just talked about Winter's Well, which have been on there uh, previously, Drone of Brutality, which uh, slipped onto there after Auckland, definitely. Uh, but basically my criteria for this list is repetitive effects is, is one criteria. So repetitive effects that you can abuse to either uh, change a game state or accelerate a game state or net gain resources. That's that's one particular criteria. The other is uh, pieces that can easily, so easily in terms of it's easy to use and it can fit into potential shells of future design space that can abuse drawing cards, uh, gaining resources, being able to set up combos basically to to win the game. Those are the cards. That's kind of my criteria uh, and super above rate cards. That's that's kind of what it looks like for me, especially if those super above rate cards are really flexible. So, you know, Flick Flack isn't on the list for me because it's not as flexible, right, Brina? Although I do agree, 0 for 6 on face value is, is really, really powerful, but that card is not that flexible, for instance. So I thought I'd just give a, give this list because I know uh, the question that Commander Cookout was asking for these questions. So I'll just kind of run through them and I might give, maybe Brennan, you can just ask me for justification on a couple of them rather than us diving into all of them. But uh, Tom Fiendel is definitely on that list. Spark of Genius is on that list. Three of a kind. Energy Potion is very near the top of that list. Storm Striders, Great Library of Solana, Crown of Seeds, Channel Mount Heroic, Aether Wildfire definitely, and Brainstorm is my current list of cards that I think have the potential to be broken or abused or end up on the ban list in the very near future of flesh and blood yeah if it's not equipment i, I wonder if a decent like if you were gonna like if you wanted to put out like a like a pre-screening like criteria it's like cards that people play nine of especially like generic cards like if you can justify playing nine of a card it's like maybe that should be a red flag um what was the question yeah it looks well, like with well i mean oh uh, mostly generic <laughs> right generic is the one like if it's generic sure, that's sure. me um but yeah, it does seem it does sound like you picked all the fun cards. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I hope the energy potion doesn't get banned. I understand that it's I understand how powerful it is, but I do That's think crazy. I do think that in flesh and blood there should be strategies that reward players for setting up rather than just kind of playing their hand every turn. And I think the energy potion is like the the perfect example of that, at least in the, the game right now. Yeah, it's, it's so it fits into my criteria of a card that allows you to do something outside of a normal turn structure to potentially present a, a game ending combo and to present damage over and massively over and above rate but it's also super flexible being a blue uh you know and the fact that you can just also use it anytime you want there's no restriction around when you can activate it once it's on the field so energy potion is i mean it's a card that i think is just going to continue to be in this game and continue to get better and better i really hope we see a card like potion of strength become more relevant as well you know the thing about the og welcome to race potions um timestamp being the other of course which we have seen have some play and uh but obviously i think that Delaying one action point as opposed to, you know, two resources is, uh, is a little bit different, I think. Yeah, action points are a little easier to come by in the game these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this time snap. I mean, I, all these po- a lot of these potions are just you're kind of investing the equity of a past turn into sure. the future, uh, which I think is cool. Like, I think that you should be able to do that in Fab. It's just like, how do we do that without it breaking? Energy potion isn't broken yet, unless you're playing game. It's true. This is this is my watch list, as I say. Like, I don't think three of a kind is broken yet, but it has the potential to be broken. You know, I mean, there's a, it has a potential for abusability depending on, uh, you know, ways to, I guess, get around the effect or ways to have onboard sort of resources or assets that you can use once you can power your handful of cards. Um, so, what's you know, that new brute card, by the way? Sorry, that was a rogue thought that just creeped in for me. The one that lets you draw every time you discard. Berserk. Yeah, that's got to be on yeah. the list. Mm, I think so the one of the pieces for me on my list is like it has to be quite uh I guess the design space has to look like it can be broken in the future and I think with that one I, I guess it's probably close to the list to be honest but I think my experience like trying to look into that card is that the I guess the random nature of the effect and the, the ability for the effect to just stop so yes if you could fill your entire deck with sixes I guess but then you still you need to also be able to fill your deck with ways to generate the draw so there's always a natural kind of offset to that card in terms of 
you know you need the cards to get a power the ability but you also need the cards to fulfill the the ability itself so there's kind of a, a natural like tension there um which is which is a bit i guess a bit hard to maybe get around same with wildfire though right <laughs> no 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 wildfire is a lot more flexible i would say <laughs> Yeah, I think that, anyway, that, card, that card is wild, though. Uh, well, we'll see. Like, we'll see. Wildfire is wild. I think it's like, I, I, like after this combo, I'm, I'm kind of confirmed that Hayden is uh, protecting, sandbagging Brute, and then also just trying to get Wizard banned. <laughs> yeah, that, or I think that Brute is pretty average and doesn't have these cards that are exploitable, and Wizard definitely does because Brainstorm's also on this list. Um, to be honest, there could be there could be more. I mean, Stormstriders is definitely on this list. I, I think, oh, no. yeah, I think that not that again. We've been there anyway uh you know if you want to know more about this tweet at me or something and i can give you specifics for each of the cards if there's one of these cards that you disagree with or think is an interesting inclusion on this list great library salina might be interesting to people but uh yeah if you want to get your questions in for the commander cookout you can do so at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com shoot us the question there you can drop it in the comments below on youtube you can tweet at us dm us on twitter uh you know i'll be at the calling auction this weekend you can slip me a little note and please don't write a little note on a piece of paper and hand it to me because that uh will end up back in your pocket mm. <laughs> anyway, Brendan, time for the main topic of the show. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to dive into a little bit of preparation and through the lens specifically of the Calling Auckland. So, you know, I think the way that we're going to kind of do this is I'm going to take you through what the specific journeys look like for testing for this event, preparing for the Calling Auckland. And Brendan, I'm going to just open the floor to you to just kind of like pepper me with questions, you know, to put in your kind of input of ways that you have maybe prepared differently, you know, things that you like about. The preparation we've done the past things you don't like and uh we can just go from there i think mm-hmm. all right but first of all i want to start with some high level preparation considerations and i want your input on these here's some questions for you i'm going to fire them at you and maybe i'll answer these and maybe i'll just leave them to brendan what's the most important part of preparing for an event in your in your eyes preparing for any kind of event whether it be a national championship uh, a, a pro tour uh, a calling or even even you know a, a pro quest if you're looking for that elusive uh, pt invite yeah it's hard to say because like i think in the context of us and our past experience i think the most important part of preparing for an event is uh getting reps on the deck that's like one of the things that we seem to struggle with but i think for for like the 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 normal person right approaching this from zero prior testing experience um i think the most important thing is discipline and actually getting those games in and having focused testing, not just jamming games with your friends and kind of, you know, messing around. Not that you can't have fun, but I think a data oriented approach and a disciplined approach where you set aside specific times and you, you sort of talk about goals for that time and zoom out after that, have meetings and sort of yeah monitor it like it was, it, it was a professional endeavor. I think you're going to get a lot more out of it than you would if it was just sort of ad hoc or laissez faire, you know, just playing at a game store. And it's not necessarily less fun, um, but I just think it's it's much, much, much more effective. And it's I think it's really important to being successful at these events. Have yeah, a goal, meaningful I guess, t- is like the, the, the most simple way of saying that. Yeah, I would call it like meaningful testing. I think mm-hmm. that's what we've referred to it in the past as. Um, I agree. And I definitely agree on getting ripped to the deck. That's probably, probably close for me. Uh, what about Brennan? What is the hardest part about uh, tournament preparation? Well, I think it's maintaining that that level of uh, that approach, right? Because I think that the the testing process can quickly degenerate into just jamming games, or you lose sight, you lose you lose that focus, right? It's really hard to actually maintain that focus over an extended period of time, especially when you're looking at a tournament like a Pro Tour or Worlds, because you can potentially be looking at months where you need to keep up team morale, keep everybody focused, keep data integrity intact, which degenerates quickly if you're with a bunch of uh, card gamers. It's hard to get people to enter data. Um, and actually just, you know, keep that, keep that goal in mind, like why you're all there. Um, that's, that's honestly the hardest, the hardest part for me, I think is keeping everybody on board and everybody focused to try to achieve that original goal that you set out. Yeah. I think for me, the hardest part about event preparation is staying committed and disciplined. I think, like you say, sometimes testing just isn't fun. It's like, okay, we need to test into this ultimate fatigue matchup to work out mm. our plan and make sure it's viable. And you know what, for me, that's not very enjoyable uh, playing the ultimate side of the deck, but someone's got to do it, right? And so often I'll be like, okay, I'm going to do it. Let's just get it done. And I guess the reason for me to stay disciplined is like the the end, the end goal is going to provide me with, you know, a really good sort of resource that I can then take into the event. So yes, one or two days of testing might not be as enjoyable as the other one or two days, but sometimes it's like, just keep discipline and, and get it done and keep that focus testing like you talked about before. Yeah, I think um, a, I think a lot of honestly, I think a lot of testing is is not 
pure like hedonism like it's not enjoyable no. um but it, uh, that's how the best things in life are you know you, you kind of sometimes you have to work hard but it, it's really not that you, you just keep you got to keep uh keep the goal in mind and if you do that um it's all worth it in the end i think yeah i don't come out of like a a, a ridiculous sweat session I mean, I come out of it feeling great and feeling like I had a good time. You know, I want to do it again. But at the time, halfway through when I'm absolutely dying and my heart rate's like knocking on the door of 200 and I feel like I'm going to faint. No, I don't feel good about that. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's how things are. Uh, what is something people don't often consider when it comes to event preparation? What is something that people just kind of pass by or just kind mm-hmm. of, you know, ignore? Data, I think. Like, I think that people who don't utilize data in their testing process are just shortchanging themselves. Like, there's no reason not to, and it's pretty much universally unpleasant at every point of the experience. Like metadata, you mean? You no, know, like entering your your data from testing games. Uh, metadata as well, I mean, but this is the part that sucks is like, I think if you're playing games in a testing group or even with two people, you should be entering the results of every match, tracking the decks, tracking the archetypes, tracking card changes, tracking just like general notes. Like, we, we used to do like word queries over our notes for like punt and stuff like that to create like a punt percentage of like outlier games and things like that i mean there's just so much you you might have yeah there's just so much we can do you can do with the data and i think it's so easy to just not do that because it sucks there's nothing fun about it and sometimes it's freaking useless too in the end but sometimes it's useful and when it is useful you have a massive a massive edge over all the other people that are not um, keeping track of their data yeah it's interesting i think Obviously, a lot of your answers here are data-related. I think uh, I'll take this back a step for me. I think something that people don't consider when it comes to event preparation is the, the their sample size and testing. I think people often attribute things based on really small sample size as absolute. And I think that's why you get a lot of discourse in the community between, well, partly, partly part of the discourse in the community between matchups and how people think, you know, <laughs> The old, the 60, you know, the 60-60 matchup, uh, the, the classic, right? The, <laughs> um, that we've talked about before, you know, both both players feeling like they're favored into a matchup. And it's like, I think small sample sizes can also lead to that. But I think sometimes small sample sizes also cause you to make decisions that, uh, you know, like can affirm biases that you might have. Like, okay, I play some games with this, this deck into a matchup that is traditionally unfavored. The opponent doesn't really understand the matchup. We play two games and that's my data set. Yeah, the, the matchup is like, I can flip this matchup. It's actually a great matchup. And then you all of a sudden you go to the events, you play against players who have prepared a lot more games against that deck and, you know, you, you don't run the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, you attribute the three games you play into your, like, potentially you think is a good matchup, but actually might be a bad matchup. Is like, yeah, I just got really unlucky. You know, my draws were terrible. Right, right, whatever. Uh, I'm going to write that off. It's like, should you be writing that data off? And in other cases, like, should you be investigating that data more? I think it's yep. uh, interesting. And like in modern day flesh and blood, you got Tommy Talishar that comes to the testing group is like, you know, a hundred no with this deck. 80% win rate. 80%, yeah. no, no, eight, 1800% win rate. Never lose. <laughs> uh, what is one thing that you personally, Brendan, think you do well when it comes to event preparation? Um, I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at keeping the goal in mind. <laughs> I think that like, honestly, that's the role that I kind of get. I don't know if I get forced into it or I just end up falling into it, but I feel like the kind of taught, like the sort of trying to look at everything from the <clears throat> 10,000 foot view. Yeah. Bingo card that voice. Um, and try to keep everybody sort of like grounded and the, the goal in mind to keep the, the testing focused tends to be just like one of the responsibilities that I end up picking up, whether we've designated or not. I don't know if I'm necessarily good at it, but I just, yeah, I find that I, end up kind of sometimes supplementing that role what about Mm. yourself i think it's um asking questions i think one of the things that my testing seems to go really well is that we we get through sessions we ask questions we answer those questions and we just stay really focused to try and find the solutions that we're looking for and um we get through them pretty quickly like i'll go through some of the testing we did for auckland but we got through a lot of decks and a lot of matchups in a very short space of time and i feel pretty confident in the the kind of results that we we came to because you know, we had these questions, we answered the questions with a very specific frame when we played these matchups, and I'll explain that a little bit later what that kind of means, but just as a small example, right, I used the Fatigue Ultimate matchup before, it's like, okay, we're going to play 10 games of these these strategies into Fatigue Ultimate, and I think in a in a matchup like that where both players can understand, understand both sides of the matchup, you can get by with a small sample size because you're actually, you're trying to answer a question, look at repetitive play patterns, like where can I leak damage, how can I leak damage, is the strategy viable because of that? And I think it doesn't take many sets to answer that question and, and then we can move on. So focus questions, answering those questions is something that I think that 
we've kind of done well. And I think just makes your testing process just so much more efficient and um, you can get through sort of questions a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty funny, actually, you talked about your old 10,000 foot view, just a small tangent aside, because I think people enjoy this. But um, if you, you know, I know Brennan, you know who Chris Bewley is. People might mm-hmm. know Chris Bewley was the uh, the former, I don't even know what his role was, social media manager, maybe for, for Legend Story Studios, now moved on to Community do other manager, things. Maybe. But <laughs> yeah, but one time, me and a uh, friend of the show, Dan McKay, testing partner, we uh, we made a poster for Chris Bewley, which was called uh, Bewleyisms, which was literally just all the things that Chris Bewley said on repeat. And it was this big poster that had them all in there. And uh, some of them, you know, I won't, won't go into. But I feel like maybe Brendan, people might make the same thing for you. You know, Brendanisms with 10,000 foot view, heuristics, you know, all these uh, things on them. Heuristics is a great word. And it's a great Your birthday's tool. coming up. Yeah. So great word, great tool. Uh, what's one thing, we'll move on. What's one thing you have to work on or have worked on or continue to work on when it comes to event preparation? Yeah, it's it's what you kind of said already, and that's like the small sample size data. <clears throat> like I can't tell you how many times in our testing group something is a uh, hundred zero or it's broken. It's a buy, and yeah, okay, it's not a buy. We figure it out later. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. A lot of it's hubris. A lot of it's confidence. Um, and sometimes the people playing the opposing decks are not the right players to be playing that deck. Sometimes they're kind of bad. Um, and that happens at the highest level. Sometimes people just kind of suck or they're, you know, they're tired or whatever. But yeah, I mean, there's plenty of times. I mean, Sasha's the biggest defender. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the amount of decks he's brought to me that are just broken, never, never lose, broken. I've been playing on felt tables. Like, yeah, I've been bro, beating up a, a bot, bot for days. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bot. Um, yeah, so that that's definitely the thing that I think we need. Like, it's where we struggle the most. And, you know, with the wizard stuff, I think we do have like a an inherent bias to really, really wanting it to work um and i do think that we've we've evaluated it uh fairly enough you know looking at the past results in the tournaments but we have a massive massive bias towards that class yeah um i i I agree (laughs) it's pretty funny actually the old uh Yo, oh, dude, you wouldn't believe my win rate. I've been beating up on bots. And then I went on Telestrom and beat up on more bots. And then I played you guys and beat up on more bots. It's, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's just like, like the, literally the, the thing that like sometimes happens with Kenya is like, oh, how's the Icelander matchup? It's a buy. How's the Fi matchup? It's a buy. How's the Olden matchup? It's a buy. It's like, uh, okay, like, why are you losing matches and testing? Oh, f- <laughs> like, yeah, 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 exactly. Ah, oh, getting unlucky, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, let's just get rid of that sample. It's not relevant. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think for me, like continuing to work on is uh, letting go of things. Brendan can attest to this. I uh, I sometimes hold very tightly to to ideas or, or things I want to test, and uh, you know, even with probably adequate samples or an understanding of how powerful certain plans are, I'm like, no, no, no. I, I think there's something here. Small tweak here. Small tweak here. Uh, no, no, no. I think there's something here, and really, I should be letting go of that and moving on. And that's something that I've tried to get better at. Yeah, putting yeah. my pets aside. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I'm just like fucking. What a deck loses once. I'm like garbage can. That's unplayable. <laughs> Next deck. Next deck. Even if you don't understand it, right? Yeah. You're like, ah, oh, no, that's unplayable. Uh, whack, trash. <laughs> uh, all right, last one. What matters more, picking the right deck or having the right plans with heroes you're familiar with? The second one. <laughs> We've talked about it a million times. Like, I mean, you just need to be practiced. Like, you could play the best deck in the meta, and if you don't know what you're doing, you're just going to lose. I mean, you could win, like, a smaller level tournament. You can win armories and stuff like that if you just have a fundamentally powerful deck. No freaking chance if you're showing up at, like, a Pro Tour or Worlds where other players are also playing. Progress. Yeah, I mean, also, players are going to be playing that deck. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they'll Maybe be prepared. Yeah, they'll be prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I agree. I think it's, like, a 90-10 rule probably i think i agree like 90 percent of the time it's it's the latter it's having the right plans with the heroes you're familiar with because i think you can you know we've seen specialists do so well by catering their plans to different fields changing the deck up changing the cards up changing even the game plans up for certain matchups but sometimes you know picking the right deck is is just the best thing even yeah. with you know you need to need some serviceable amount of play on these decks right like and it does depend on the deck like icelander versus something like you know maybe Prior, for instance, there's there's a difference in I guess getting to eighty percent versus you know, being proficient in the deck. I think that this is actually something I want to I want to talk about a little more because uh, so it's funny because in other card games I think you can play like uh, tier one point five decks and you can like win tournaments like 
you know, they have more variants, right? I think Flesh and Blood is a game that the variance is low enough that there are some heroes that are just better than other heroes. Um, and sometimes I think at the highest level, some heroes and some decks are borderline not viable. This doesn't really count like things like Lexi and stuff that are just not picked because, you know, they have like a really bad old hit matchup that represents some of the field, but they're actually really good decks if they pair into the right things. This is like, you know, like your Katsu versus your Fi, where it's like, yeah, there's pretty much no reason to be playing Katsu. And it's like, even if that's your pet deck, Fi's probably just kind of better. And like the same thing, maybe with like Levia and stuff like that. I think that's is a bit of a somewhat unique thing to Flesh and Blood, where, you know, how the cards are balanced. There are some heroes right now that are just like, they're, they just feel like strictly better almost. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I think it's consistency is a big part of that. But, um, you know, I think this is a, a deep dive for another pod that we and we have gone into this before i think about why selecting certain heroes or decks and familiarity versus uh just a straight power and consistency because i think consistency often gets mixed up or confused for power in this game and sometimes rightly so and sometimes mm-hmm. not so rightly so so um but yeah i want to go into just kind of you know kind of end this main topic of the pod and, and talking about preparation right i guess we're you know maybe halfway whatever it is talk about my preparation for Auckland because there's something that I kind of discovered during preparation for Auckland which is that we and I don't think we've really talked about this Brendan but I think we have really solidified kind of phases of how traditionally we've tested I think even when we tested together Brendan although we haven't, haven't for a while now we had these phases as well and it's something that myself and and the doctor Damakai we do in our testing as well and so and it's something that I kind of came to to realize that you know we have these kind of blocks of testing so I kind of want to go through that talk about my experience testing for Auckland uh, although it has been a bit more limited than maybe I'd like, it's definitely been, I'd say, like pretty pretty thorough, and it started quite early on. So, I mean, Brendan, unless you've got any other things to kind of add on our high level preparation considerations, I might just dive into that. The floor is yours. Feel free to draw uh, me as we go. So, I think the first kind of phase in testing for any event in my eyes is like what I'm calling the exploratory phase, and Brendan will be very familiar with this. But it's like this for us started back in January for like ProQuest season. And basically, exploratory phase often is looking at like testing to try and find something that's broken, new, or exciting. So in this case, it was uh, I put outsiders in my notes for some reason, but dynasty. But we'll be doing this for outsiders as well. Getting dynasty, breaking down the set, looking for the cards that or the strategies that we think could be could be interesting, could be viable. So you know, we talked about this in the pod when dynasty dropped in our review. But some of the cards that I was looking at immediately, it's like okay, like looming doom. You know, like how, berserk. Like what are these cards? So I spent time with these cards, building decks, trying to make these these cards viable. Hanabi Blaster was a card that I was like super interested in. Right, like how how this was the exploratory phase. So for us, this looked like Rhino, looked like Bastride, looked like Hanabi Dash. That was probably the most successful of those decks we had. It was really powerful. It is really powerful. Uh, Livia definitely spent some time with because of cards like Madcap Charger and some of the new uh, sort of consistent ways to get go again. And then that's kind of what the exploratory phase looks like is just try and find the most powerful things, try and find the things that are new, that are innovative, that are exciting and ways that could potentially attack the format in a different way. And, and Brendan, you know, I know we've, you've always done this with, with Sasha in your testing. We did this in our testing. It's how we, you know, we found Chain early. It's how we, you know, it's how you guys uh, got to, to Kano. And uh, actually Kano, you know, and for PT1, you guys were testing that from like day one. Like no, literally, the, it, was actually, it was actually just Sasha just Sasha by himself and what's funny is like he was actually kind of an outcast in that group because he wouldn't play with anybody he would just felt table and it was like it was like borderline it was like borderline a problem and you saw this happen when you were in the 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 later process of when he was doing the the briar the briar combo thing which i don't yes, know yes, yes. so it yeah, was like i wasn't i actually i didn't realize that about kendo because i didn't i unfortunately times and i didn't get to test with you guys for, for pt1 so i didn't realize that so he was actually doing the same thing that same PT2. thing same <laughs> thing and he would do that and he would refuse to play against anybody and it was like dude this is not gonna work and then he would eventually play against me and the deck would just it sucked ass <laughs> it was yeah. i'm sorry it was terrible um and it only beat like something very very like it beat like ab0 and like that that's like all it did literally until like the weekend before and like the deck was just super bad and sasha just felt tabled it the entire time <laughs> it's just ridiculous but um yeah the exploratory phase is a funny one um because i feel like we actually probably stay in that lane a little bit too long if anything i think yeah. we're, i think we're really good at being in that you know like we're always looking for the new deck the best deck the surprise deck where we always want to catch them yeah absolutely we want to we always want to catch the meta off guard we always want to be doing something that's fundamentally unfair like we don't want our opponents to be actually 
playing the game. Um, and yeah, so we probably stay in that, that period a bit, a bit too long. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think that anybody who's approaching these tournaments, um, because flesh and blood, especially because flesh and blood is such a young game, I think that there's almost always opportunity to just crack the meta wide open, um, which we've seen many, many times. I think that a lot of flesh and blood tournaments have been won by new, uh, breakout decks. You got Tarek Patel, um, Michael Hamilton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep, folks with the the snatch, the, the yellow line, the little briar deck, which we, we did see a little bit of, but obviously, you know, it wasn't wasn't the deck that people were on. Um yeah, so for us for Auckland for this coming calling this weekend, the exploratory phase for me, it's it's a bit more of a solo experience, I think. You know, it's you don't need to be doing it with testing partners necessarily because, you know, they're gonna bang their head against a brick wall when you ask to just them to play fire while you play every single brew into fire, for instance. Um but, you know, I think this is where I took decks to armories. This is where maybe I wasn't playing consistently every week, but I was, like, trying to find things, a lot more theory crafting, a little bit less playing. Um, and this was kind of, for, for me, like, from basically since Dynasty dropped all the way through to, like, the end of January, almost to the banner spend announcement, really. This, this was the exploratory phase, trying to find things out. I think the next phase is, like, the refining phase. And this is here where we take decks or strategies that are, are more established and try and test these to try and understand deeper fundamentals to potentially iterate or adapt on. So... For me, in this instance, this happened in January. I moved to the refining phase. I kind of left behind a lot of the exploratory stuff. You know, Reiner got packed away again, as per usual. Um, you know, Dash held on, though. You know, that's one deck I took from the exploratory phase. This is Hanabi Dash. They can move that through. But a lot of the other stuff, the Viserai, Looming Doom combo deck, the Berserk combo deck, this, these things, you know, kind of moved to the side of Libya. Uh, and then I picked up Lexi for a few weeks and was like, okay, I want to understand fundamentally more about Lexi. It seems... To me, it's quite well positioned in what this format might look like, you know, what this format kind of looks like right now. So I want to, you know, potentially look at my own list. How would I build this? How can I iterate? How can I adapt on this? Kano is definitely in there. What can Kano maybe look like in this new meta? Um, what does Briar look like? So taking more known, more knowns, I think, and, and less of like this kind of exploratory thing and actually just taking these decks rather than just trying to find out, okay, what's the base power level of these decks? It's like, how can you take these into a real meta, like, so a real life example, and what can these look like and start to test that way? So playing games, um, testing different cards, testing slightly different strategies with these heroes that you already know are viable and uh, potentially good. Yeah, it's actually funny because um, not only is it broken up into phases, but also like certain players uh, sort of fit those roles a bit better. Like I, I think in the exploratory phase, I'm almost never ideating decks from zero. I'm always taking these piles of garbage and then testing them against the gauntlet while other people do that. <laughs> you know, like whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah, piles, whoa, of whoa, whoa, piles of garbage. But like, uh, no, it's just like that's the player I am. I'm I'm always the player that's tweaking cards um, and trying to sort of refined game plans rather than um, looking for the combos, looking for specific cards to break out or God forbid, picking up a new class trying to, <laughs> trying to make that Friends good. Worst nightmare. Yeah. 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 I, I think, um, and so a lot of my testing happens with, with the doctor and uh, that's, that's also, I think what he does really well as well as, you know, I'll throw bruise at him and he'll tell me the trash. And then sometimes he'll be like, ah, maybe that's got some viability to it. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll play those. Kind of next, I think, so exploratory, if that's finding the best thing, this is uh, refining the best thing is often what what uh, the refining phase is. Then mm -hmm. event testing. This is, you know, for me, for Auckland, this has been post-banner spend. This has been the last couple of weeks, a lot more focused sort of testing when, you know, being back from holiday. Um, this is a phase where you start to actually test for the event in question. So no longer are you just uh, sort of, I guess, and even in the last phase, refining phase, you, it's a bit more sort of, um theory you know like well this it could look like this there could be this kind of meta these are the decks that we kind of roughly want to target now when you get to event testing it's like okay we're going to the specific event now we're starting to think about the meta for this specific event based on events that have happened previously and this kind of this is where you start to use a lot of information and data right you're gathering information from you know events like the calling indianapolis battle hard in bologna for an hour instance we're looking to find the sentiments of like players in the community and how the the meta is likely to develop so you know from week one to week two and D2, Bologna, you know, Oldham's rise through that, old Icelanders rise, you know, those are the things that we're interested in. Dash is kind of, you know, slight downfall. Those are the things that we're kind of trying to understand, understand the narratives to try and get an idea of, okay, what are we testing specifically for the event? Mm -hmm. um, this is usually, I guess, you know, moving on from info gathering, um, it's about the development of the decks rather than finding a deck to, to play. So 
we're starting to narrow down the choices and look at you know game plans and and specific matchup percentages. So like, what, you know, what does this deck into this deck? How do the games plan the game plans play out? So Orkut in particular, this is kind of when we narrowed down to Briar, Ultim, Dash, Icelander, Kano is like the decks that we think had the best strategies in the format. You know, I'd put Lexi aside again, unfortunately, just based based on the starter gathering. It's like I expect a lot of Guardian in New Zealand. So I think Lexi for me uh, kind of moves to the side a little bit and some of these other decks are more interesting. Yeah, so we will, what that looks like in practice is we'll put the decks through very rigorous gauntlet testing, um, pretty much every deck possible um and really hammer home the other tier one decks we expect we will also usually do like a meta um prediction so we'll all get in the call we'll do tier lists we'll do like a poll to figure out what everybody thinks the most represented decks are then aggregate that data and you know create a sort of a visualization from there it's like what do we all actually think is going to be the top three decks and you know sometimes it's surprising sometimes it's not what you uh, individually thought or you personally thought it would be and from there we sort of you know read refine the sideboard more make sure we're on the right pick like does this pick suck into the top three decks maybe it's the wrong thing and then yeah just just run it into those gauntlet decks yeah you're rather than trying to find out information about the, the your deck you're trying to find information out about like the meta and and um where your deck is positioned and this is a phase that traditionally i'm a bit bit poorer at because i i attach myself to the heroes i really have enjoyed during the exploratory and the refining phase and the event testing phase i want to play those and uh, maybe i hold on to them too long dash pt1 uh <laughs> kano for worlds things like this ultimately obviously played kano worlds but um so for, for us what this looked like for Auckland's, we, we started with kano we were really interested in, in, in looking at kano again uh, we felt that, you know, just kind of where Dash is at right now and Iceland is still being around and even some of the, you know, strategies with like fatigue with people just playing away spite naturally, things like this. Kano kind of went to the side, then we moved to Briar ourselves. It's like, okay, what, you know, we, what does Briar look like into the Gauntlet? Like Brendan said, we're running this through. And then uh, we pivoted to Dash because we worried about some of Briar's matchups. And it's like, okay, Dash, I'm really excited about Dash again. A lot of, you know, back to more of a hybrid strategy is the thing that we were kind of looking at again. And then it was like, oh, okay, I just feel like I cannot beat Ultim for the life of me. And I'm worried about that deck being there. I'm pivoting back to Briar now, running that through a bit more gauntlet testing, things that are, you know, answering the questions. Like one of the quick questions for us was like, how do you beat Ultim? How do you beat Fatigue Ultim? How do you beat both strategies of Ultim? It was like a big question for us. And then uh, moving across to Icelander to, to try and co- combat, you know, some of the wider meta expectations as things have started to change as well. So that's kind of, I guess, we're going to move on to the next phase, but I think for for me right now, I'm between Briar and, and Icelander. That's kind of where I'm set at right now. I think those strategies are really strong, just natural strategies. And I think they have potentially good spots in the meta game. For me now, it's like trying to decide the last few things about matchups and where I want to potentially pick apart the meta. What are those decks I want to play? And is there any different sort of strategies with those decks that I think are viable? Which I do think there's a couple of tweaks and things that can be made for those heroes to potentially attack a potential meta. Uh, but I think, like on the flip side, that like Ultima is a deck that's really impressed me during this this testing sort of season, um, as well as actually like so has so has Dromai, which has been really interesting. And I think had I had another week or two and been more of a Dromai player, Dromai is a deck that I could very well land on for for Auckland. I think it's actually in a, a potentially pretty good position this weekend. Bit of a stark contrast to the discussion we have with Tarek last week, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I do think Dromai has some legs. And then I guess Brendan, the, the last bit of this is the finalizing phase. So this is where we're, this is usually like the few days before an event, two or three days generally. This is what I'm about to enter into now, which is like we lock in the hero ideally and now we're refining plans and what we plan to do for the event. So this can look uh, like getting reps in for specific matchups. Maybe someone in the team doesn't quite understand the matchup. We need to get them across that game plan um, where there's or there's still an aspect. We don't understand the game plan. We don't quite have the game plan down. We need to start trying to work that out, tweak it a little bit. Uh, this is making like rather than making hero decisions, we're now making like just we're not making the background decisions. We're making like gameplay decisions and like planned decisions at this point um, in this step. Yeah, and sometimes we're revisiting the exploratory phase. <laughs> <laughs> no, no longer. I mean, this is a funny thing, right? It's like oh PT, PT1. Like, you should talk about PT2 and the freaking uh, well, Stir the Wildwood deck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the day before PT two. I just in the if you check out the vlog for PT Leal, it's pretty funny. Like uh, two days before the event, we're test. So we had three days full testing in Leal, and it's like, okay, end of day one, like feeling really good. Start of day two, like feeling really good. Got this like stir the wild with this like tall bride. We feel really good about it. End of day two, absolute shambles. <laughs> Back to the exploratory phase. Uh, it's interesting because in the past, I think there were these phases have looked very different for uh, myself, for Brendan, for whoever we've been testing with. So, for instance, for like Australian Nationals at the start of 2022, 
this finalizing phase was actually like a month like me and 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 the doctor mr dan who were doing all of our testing together for for the nationals uh, season we had basically decided that we were going to play viscerae like three weeks before and it because we had moved through that refining that uh you know exploratory had happened we're moving through the refining phase the, the format was pretty mature as well which helped and then we were just in this like event testing and finalizing phase for like three weeks basically um whereas you know like brennan said pt Leal, you know we were jumping and chopping and changing between phases this finalizing phase happened about one an hour before declare submissions would you yeah it was uh it was that's not my ideal though i don't like that it's hectic (laughs) i would say for worlds as another example from our testing like kano um i was in the finalizing phase i'd say for like the last week week and a half and the kind of event testing phase for like three weeks even like i was pretty i moved through the exploratory phase pretty early was pretty locked on kano so it really it really depends on like you know, is the meta changing is, you know, what is like, who are the people you're testing with? What are the goals you have? Like, sometimes you can just say to yourself, okay, like I need a week to two weeks for this kind of finalizing phase or this event testing phase, maybe three weeks. So I'm locking into a hero mm-hmm. or narrowing down to two heroes by the like three weeks before the event, for instance, and just, yeah. and just sticking to it. You can do that. <laughs> yeah. We, we do set hard de- deadlines, at least verbally. <laughs> we we yeah, do. <laughs> We're like, well, it's going to be locked by this day. No later. And then, you know, some saboteur in the group just is like, well, what about this? <laughs> well, I would say the last few events I've, I've tested and, and specifically testing with, with someone like, uh, like Dan, who obviously I do a lot of testing with, he's a, he's a bit more, he i'd say normal a little bit less prone to uh last minute changing although he definitely still does it oh my yeah he's cut from the same cloth damn makai has got his own funny little quirks too <laughs> oh that's true yeah. some makai's um uh, all right Brent, i think that's gonna fatigue. kind of sorry i was just i was reminiscing about the the chain fatigue when we had the strategy but dan was just like nope <laughs> no stack no stack why stack oh just play God. it uh, all right Brendan. i think that's going to do it for the main topic of the pod talking about calling preparation specifically specifically through the lens of auckland i'm super excited for auckland uh, as i say my options are narrowed down i'm just working out what the plans look like and uh, ready to lock in the deck for this weekend hopefully a couple more days of testing i'm flying to auckland early so i've got a full day and a half with uh with dan and our editor dave uh to you know play some last few games and work out what the heck to play um Maybe some card changes, maybe some spicy tech added to, the, to these lists. I don't know, Brennan, you got any other last kind of thoughts before we close it out just on, on preparations couple, yeah. in general? So first off, I hope you vlog and you vlog your dinner in, in Auckland. So that's going to be very good. You got a pasture? Yeah. Yes, okay, I will. I will. Best restaurant in the world. Um, but so I just want to talk about what I think is like the, the biggest, probably the biggest failing of all testing since uh since we started playing flesh and blood and i think that's uh we do treat it a little or at least i do i think which i end up treating it a little bit serious um sometimes and i think that i kind of treat it as a job right and while that's fine for you know means to an end i think that the testing process um even when it's unpleasant even when it feels like work and when it sucks is very much a part of the overall experience i think it's important to sort of appreciate that um and it's just it's something that i've reflected on since i you know stepped back from playing a bit um it's just like all of that you know it's all part of the same experience and um you know the testing process isn't like this this like hardcore (laughs) kind of thing you have to get through to get to it um it's very much uh you know very much all runs together yeah i agree i I do think that no matter where you are on that spectrum of how you want to engage in in the testing process i think these phases are really helpful ways to at least move through it, even if you're doing it in a more casual way. I think just just because you want to approach something with you know a lot of fun and, and vigor and, and you want it to be casual doesn't mean you can't have some structure. I think structure is something that often people lack during testing of flesh and blood, and it's it's kind of you know pretty easy to implement and can help so so much. Um, so I really recommend it's, it's just my number one recommendation for people testing is just have some structure to it. That's meaningful testing. That's what will help you get through and prepare for an event. Yep. Yep. All right, Brendan, going to close it out. If you want to follow this man right here on Twitter, he is at Brendan APG. I'm at Fian underscore Dale. Come and find us on Twitter. Again, you can shoot us, come on and cook out questions if you want to through there. Uh, I will be at Calling Auckland. Looking forward to seeing some of you there. It's going to be an awesome weekend, I think. I'll be there, I'm sure, around at the venue on Friday too. I think there's a Welcome to Wraith sealed event that James White is playing in. I think you can win like a law book or something. So that sounds tasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, Brendan, until next week, we'll see you in the next one. Bye, everybody.